Hello again. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Starting on page 1156, if you're following along in your pew Bible. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good morning, everyone. So we are finishing up a series which we began three weeks ago, and it is a series called Collide. Right, Collide. I'm still thinking that if I say it, it's going to be funny eventually. It's a series called Collide, and one of the things that I bring out each time I mention the title for this series is that when we think about the word collide, we always tend to think of something negative, right? The word collide has negative connotations. We think about, for example, about 20 years ago when I was in a skiing accident in Colorado. Uh, I remember like it, like it was yesterday, I was skiing at Arapahoe Basin, uh, which is one of the highest ski areas in Colorado. Most of the ski areas close in like April. Uh, Arapahoe Basin, the top of it, often doesn't close until May and sometimes even into June because it's exceptionally high up. And I was skiing at the top of the mountain, and I was skiing in this place that's above 13,000 feet. So it's way above the tree line. Trees can't breathe. That's probably tell you something when you're going up there. But anyway, so I, I was skiing this area of the mountain called the East Wall, which is sort of ski at your own risk. The ski patrol tells you they don't really, they don't really look for unmarked obstacles. That's, there, are, there are unmarked obstacles that you never know what you're going to run into. And basically, it's this, this huge... Uh, wall because there are no trees and it, it's this huge wall that slopes down like this and then there are these massive boulders that are sort of sticking out of it that create these cliffs and these little hills almost like little half pipes so you can come screaming down and you can hit one of these little half pipes and, and that's what I was doing so I was flying down I, just, I got in the tuck position and I'm just flying down the mountain towards this this little uh, lip that's going to take me up the side of this small hill and launch me into the air, and I fly down going as fast as I can, and I launch up, and I'm flying through the air, and I look down, and I realize, I realize that the laws of physics have scheduled for me to land where somebody is currently standing, 
right? Uh, so my, I can see my skis are scheduled to take this man's head off. And uh, in, this, in the moment, I, I managed, I mean, you can't change the law of physics. I know it's going to land there. But I did manage to sort of kick my skis to the side so that my skis didn't hit, hit his head. But I slammed, slammed into him. We both tumbled tumbled to the ground, and, and I got up. I was worried, what had I done to this poor guy? Well, he got up, and he seemed to be fine, but his ski pole was now bent at about, you know, 30 degrees or something like that more. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is going to happen to me? My parents, right? This is I was a kid at the time. My parents are going to kill me. And I, I look at him, and I say, sir, I am so sorry. And I'm not kidding you. He, he looks at me. He looks at the pole. He looks at me, and he goes, no problem, dude. That was awesome. <laughs> and I don't know if it's, you know, the lack of oxygen or if maybe <laughs> this is Colorado. Maybe he'd been breathing something else. I don't really know. Uh, but he took off down the mountain. But when we think of the word collide, that's the kind of thing that we think about. Some sort of accident, some sort of collision that has negative consequences. A car accident, an asteroid colliding with planet Earth and ending all of civilization. If you're a sci-fi guy like myself, that's the kind of thing that comes to mind when you think of the word collide. But what we're seeing in this series, I want us to look at it in a very different light. Because there, there are collisions that can be very beneficial. And as I've reminded you, there is a collision that takes place constantly that provides the source of energy that we need for life, that life on earth exists because there is a constant collision going on. Of course, what I'm talking about is the sun, that the sun produces its energy, I believe, this is what I'm told, or at least this is what Wikipedia said, uh, is that hydrogen atoms inside inside uh, the sun are being, because of gravity, are constantly being pulled together and colliding with one another. And when they collide, they produce this tremendous amount of energy, which then produces the heat that we need for life. And what I'm suggesting is that there's a kind of collision that we want to have taking place in our church. And that the more this collision takes place, the more of kind of energy will be produced that will enable our church to be very fruitful. And what I'm talking about is this. What happens when our core commitments collide with our core values? We have these core commitments. People will ask me, you know, if you get involved in Rivervale Community Church, what does that mean? Like, what do you what do? You do? And, and, and I can just sort of outline it with our three core commitments. These are three areas where if you're looking to get involved in the church, we encourage you to get involved in these three areas, and if you're a member, then we ask you to commit. That's why they're called commitments to these three areas. So we have worship, connect, and serve. Worship, we encourage you to commit to coming and being a part of our worship services on Sunday morning and other special worship services that we hold throughout the year. That's worship. Then connect. We encourage you to connect, to find some way outside of Sunday morning to connect with those in, in the church body. And then finally, serve. We encourage you to serve in the many of different ways in which you can serve. So those are our core commitments. Now, the question is, what happens when, when these core commitments collide with our core values? And values aren't necessarily things that you do as much as they are the things that permeate everything that you do. At least we hope that these values permeate everything that we do. We want them to collide with our core commitments. So what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is looking at this collision. We've been looking at each core commitment. Three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at the commitment of worship. 
Then last week, we looked at the commitment of connection. This week, today, we're looking at the commitment to serve. And we're seeing what happens when you have this commitment to serve, and it collides with these core values. And the core values are being gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly faced. What happens when these core values collide with this commitment to serve? That's what we're looking at. And we're going to look at them today in reverse order from what I've been doing in previous weeks. We're going to start with being outwardly faced. What happens when the commitment of the commitment to serve collides with being outwardly faced? And of course, in one way, it's somewhat redundant. Essentially, what we see here is that it is our value, because we value being outwardly faced, that is what leads us to serve. Because we value being outwardly faced, this is what leads us to serve. In fact, what this value points to is the reality that we as a church, we exist to serve. That's why we are here. We as a church exist to serve. And we, we actually see this. This flows, we see this in the flow of this passage that Ray read this morning. Let me just sort of walk you through the flow of this passage. The beginning in the first three verses of this passage, Apostle Paul describes life apart from God. That's what we find here in verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to see here is that in many respects you can sum up what's going on in the life of a person who is apart from God by saying this, that the more you are apart from God, the more you are likely to be inwardly focused. The more you are likely to be focused in on yourself. We see this emerging in these verses here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now it's going to explain, well, what does that look like? What does this disobedience look like? It says, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. And following its desires and thoughts. We see this, that a life apart from God is a life of simply trying to gratify, gratify these passions and these desires. In other words, it's all about yourself. It's all being inwardly focused. And so that's what he's describing is this life apart from God that is inwardly focused. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 3, right, what does he say at the end of verse 3? He says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't like the word wrath, doesn't like it being associated with God, but I think it's largely just sort of misunderstood. We've got to realize why this makes sense, why the wrath of God makes sense. Because what he's saying is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is a place where people serve others. That's what the kingdom of God is. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to be a part of a community and to be a part of a world where we give ourselves for the sake of others. And so if you live for yourself, you don't fit in. You're not going to fit in in the kingdom of God if you're one who lives for yourself. And the wrath of God is God just honoring that, respecting that, saying, okay, you are not going to be a part of the kingdom of God because your orientation, your focus is completely contrary to what the values of the kingdom of God are. And what we see in here, I think, is this importance of recognizing that in our nature, that, that is our orientation. That each and every one of us, there's a humility here that he's pointing us here in that recognizing that that's who we are apart from God as people who are very inwardly focused and therefore are deserving of God's wrath. 
Uh, I'm going to embarrass Ray Rodriguez. He's, but he's an elder now, so I can do that. That's, that's legit now. Uh, but I was hanging out with Ray a few days ago. Actually, I roped him into helping me with something. He was serving me. I roped him into it. So we had some time to chat. And, and Ray said, he, I don't know how it came up. We were talking about spiritual matters. And he goes, he goes, you know, Kevin, the truth of the matter is, when I look back on my life, I see so many times when God should have just taken me out. Like when, I, when, I, when I see and saw what was going on in my heart and in my life, I realize God should have just taken me out. You see, that, that's Ray understanding the wrath of God, what he, what he deserved. And, and what's interesting here is that in the book of Proverbs, it says that that recognition is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, a recognition of God's goodness and holiness in contrast to who we are, that recognition of that gap, that fear of that is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. What an interesting point, right? I mean, if I can use a fancy word here, we might say that this is an epistemology of holy reverence. An epistemology of holy reverence. Epistemology, what does that mean? Epistemology comes from, well, the Greek word, pistis, which means to believe. Apista is talking about belief. And ology means to study. So it's the study of belief. It's the study of what you believe. And epistemology is, is sort of exploring what is the basis for knowing anything. And there are a different epistemologies which different cultures and worldviews base their system of knowledge on. Uh, the f- a famous one is Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Uh, he's saying that the, the, the one thing I know is that I think, and I'm going to build everything that I know off of that. That's sort of the, the epistemology that our modern world is, is based on. But I want you to think about here just how different this is. It's an epistemology that says, the one thing that I know is that the fear of the Lord is the first thing that should go through my mind. That is the one thing that I know is true, and I build everything else off of that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that that's a starting point from which we evaluate and see everything else in this world. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Paul, Paul points this out to us, that our inner nature is one, is one that is inwardly focused, that is contrary to the ways of God, and therefore we are deserving of God's wrath. But then he doesn't leave it there, right? Verses 4 through 6. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made me alive with Christ even when we were, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, this is the gospel. We are deserving of God's wrath, but God loves us. And despite what we've done, no no matter how far we have turned from him, no matter how consistently we have turned from him, he loves us, forgives us, and wants to welcome us into his presence. 
But we notice here, we notice that the gospel here isn't simply that we're forgiven. But then as we see God through faith in him, then we are united with Christ and that spirit begins to work in us gradually, slowly, sometimes with Sometimes it's two steps forward, two steps back, but it's working in us, and it's beginning to change us. And what, what is the purpose? What is the Spirit doing? Why has he come to save us? And then this whole passage comes to its culmination in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace, but as I often say, we aren't just saved from something. We're saved for something, and it's for good works, or which is another way of saying we are saved for the purpose of service. And this is what this value of being outwardly faced, this is why service is a core commitment. This value of being outwardly faced comes from the gospel that we were created to serve. Have you ever thought about this before? But I think many of us in our life today, in our world today, we go through life and we're just not sure, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? We're all looking, what's my, what's my purpose in life? And I just want to make it very simple for you. Your purpose in life is to serve. And, you know, that, that, you know, I don't know how you receive that, but I hope you receive that as something that is incredibly freeing. Because here's why. You can't miss out on the opportunity. You see, many of us, we, we go through life, and, and you come to some point in your life, you're like, I missed out. You know, I missed out on what I was supposed to do. I, I didn't make the right decision. I didn't get the right degree. I didn't this or that. I didn't move to the right place. I didn't do this or that. And you're like, I've missed out on being able to fulfill my purpose in life. But here's what you need to realize. If your purpose is to serve, that can never go away. Because you can always serve no matter where you are. Your purpose in life is not something that you've missed out on when you realize that your purpose is to serve. So I just want to encourage you, remember that's your purpose. Make time in your life to be a person who can serve. Okay, that, that's what happens when the, the, the value of being community oriented, excuse me, of being outwardly faced collides with the, uh, the commitment of being served. Really, it gives birth to this whole idea of service. What happens when we take the core commitment of serving and it collides with the core value of being community-oriented? What happens when this value of being community-oriented collides with our commitment to serve? And here's what I would suggest is that when we serve, and as a church when we serve, we should realize that serving is an opportunity to build community. When we serve, it's an opportunity to build community. You know, one of the things we got to realize about this letter is that Paul's not writing to his friend Ephesians. He's not, he's not writing to some guy named Ephesians Smith or something like that, right? No, Ephesians is a He's writing to a community. And this whole passage, right, we tend to read each of these verses like he's writing to individuals, but he's writing to the whole church. And these are plural pronouns that are used throughout this for it is by grace you. You can't tell in English because we don't, uh, our, our pronouns don't reflect the plurality of it, but it's, it's the plural version of you. It's all plural. For it is by grace y'all. That's the, the, the kind of the southern is the best way of putting it. For it is by grace y'all been saved through faith. It's, it's this idea that you together as a community have been saved. And then for we are God's we, right? It's all plural. We are God's workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There's this uh, community sense uh, of service that is, is important here. And I think what this does is that when we take this value of being community-oriented and it collides with service is, again, we see that service opportunities are opportunities to build community. And so let me just sort of give you an example of how this could work. I know that the trustees, uh, we just put up an advertisement for the grounds team. We need people to, lawn, to mow the lawn. Well, listen, trustees, I would encourage you when, you, when you gather people to do that, realize it's, you're not just doing it to get the job done. It's not just to cut the grass. But that you can actually, through interacting with those individuals, you can begin to build community. Trustees, when you hold work days, for example, when we have a work day, don't think it's just about getting the tasks done. That, that doing those points of service can actually be an opportunity to bond and have community. That's why we have donuts usually when we do the work day. Uh, with the tag sale, when you are looking to get volunteers, it's not just about getting the tasks done that in fact the relationships that are formed are probably more important <laughs> in many respects than a lot of the tasks that we're seeking to get done. So community-oriented service is realizing that any service opportunity is an opportunity um, to build community. And also we can combine this with being outwardly faced. Depending on the kind of activity that we're doing, it can be an opportunity to invite other people outside of the church to be a part of what we're doing. You know, some people... We're going to invite them to church, and they're not going to come. And you're going to invite them to your community group, and they're not going to come. But you, they might come if you're serving, if you're serving the neighbor, serving somewhere. They might come if it's something that's going to fit, uh, that they would relate to. That can actually be a way of pulling them in. So when we, when we look at this commitment to serve, and we combine it with this value of being community-oriented, we realize that service itself can all be about building community. You know, I said last week when we were focusing more on community, that isn't it true that we tend to, our relationships tend to be forged uh, over great experiences. Great experiences are often where you begin to build relationships with someone. And that's that said, that's why in our community groups I encourage you to have food because food is a wonderful experience and you can bond with people over good food. But I would also say is that you can bond with people in times of service as well. So that's a value which we want to bring to every area of service that we do. So that's, uh, commu- excuse me, outwardly faced, that value collides with service. Community-oriented, community oriented, we've seen what happens when that value collides with the commitment to serve. And now finally, gospel-centered. What does gospel-centered service look like? If we're going to serve, if we exist to serve, what does the value of being gospel-centered tell us about, about service. And I want to look at the what, the why, and the how. The what, the why, and the how. And what I want us to see is that being gospel-centered in our service re- recognizes a holistic approach to service. We should have a holistic approach to service because the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the climax of this massive story that flows throughout the scriptures. And when you look at the narrative of Scripture, what you discover is all kinds of different themes emerging in terms of what it means to serve. Here's what I'm getting at. A holistic approach to service is this. We should care about people physically, spiritually, individually, and socially. 
We should care for the physical needs, the spiritual needs, the individual needs, and the social needs of our world as well. We need to have a holistic approach. The reason that I say that, one of the reasons that I say that, is in American Christianity, there tends to be a wedge. And what happens is that conservative churches tend to focus on the, on the uh, spiritual and the individual. So conservative churches focus on the spiritual needs and the individual needs of people, whereas liberal churches tend to focus on physical needs and social needs, social justice needs. And really, if we're going to have a gospel-centered approach to service, a holistic approach, we, we need to bring all of that back in because God's plan, God's good news is to redeem and to restore everything. It's all his world, and he wants all of it back. And so we need to bring that to bear in our service. So that's the what. That's the what side of being gospel-centered. Secondly, and, and this I really want to drive home, is that gospel-centered service dramatically changes the why of serving. Why do we serve? And what I mean by this is the motivation. And I've said this before, and I need to drive it home again, is that the gospel creates a want-to, not-have-to attitude towards service. The gospel creates a want-to, not-have-to attitude towards service. Because here, what what does the gospel tell us? Are you ready for this? You don't have to do anything. And God will love you the same. You don't have to do anything. And God loves you the same. That's what emerges here in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, you don't have, God loves you uh, whether you sign up for, uh, to volunteer with the tag sale. Uh, God loves you whether you sign up to cut the grass. God loves you whether or not you sign up to serve in the children's ministry. God loves you whether you serve or you don't serve because God loves you on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of what you do. You see, if we don't get that, you see, then what happens in our church is we end up with a have-to attitude towards service, which is generally driven by guilt, right? It's, it's all guilt. You have to do this. And, and then those who are in leadership, they kind of put this pressure on you. You have to do this. You have to do this. And here's one of the things that I've discovered is in, in my weaker moments, I'll use guilt to try to motivate people to do things. And here's what I know is that guilt works in the short term. But in the long term, they're gone. They're not even in your church anymore if you use guilt to motivate. And so we, we want to get away from this, this have-to mentality because it's completely contrary to the gospel. Now, of course, you know, I, I've got to qualify this a little bit, right? When we talk about uh, serving because you want to, not because you have to, there are different levels of want. And here's what I mean by this. Every Sunday when I wake up, I don't always want to preach. Right? I mean, there are plenty of sentences like, oh, my gosh, I have to preach sermon. I mean, there are. There are sentences that have to do that. Okay? But here's the thing. If, if that were happening every week for months, then I would need to stop. But the reality is I want to. I want to do this. There are some Sundays when I don't. But in the bigger picture, I do want to do this. And so what I'm saying is, yeah, if you, if you sign up to do whatever, hospitality, and you've committed to doing that, and one Sunday wake up and you don't want to do it, 
you still need to do it, right? But listen, if week after week after week you're like, I am so sick of this, then you should feel free. Stop. Stop serving. Now, there's a difference. I mean, our emotions can be fickle. Maybe you, just, you don't want to serve because you ate something bad the night before. That's different, right? But in the big picture, like, if you go week after week after week after week and you don't want to serve, stop. You're free. We want to create a want to, not have to. And, and here's what I believe. The more, now, where does this come from, right? It comes from the gospel. You see, the more that we get the gospel, the more we will want. This is why the most important thing for anybody who serves in the church is them cultivating their own relationship with God. Because if that relationship isn't being cultivated, eventually it'll slip away. It'll turn into a have to and not a want to. Right? That's the why. Why do we serve? We looked at the what, the why, and now we're going to look at the how. And this is related to the why, but it's a little bit different. How do we serve? And what I mean by this is we serve by God's power not our own. We serve using God's power, God's strength, God's energy to enable us to do this. I want you to look at the the language here in verses 4 through 6. Because because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, look at this, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We see over and over again this idea that we are with Christ, that we are united with Christ, and the very power that raised Christ from the dead is available to work in us to serve so that when we serve, it's not our own strength. It's not our own power that is doing it. You know, there's a a sense in which what we're reading here is really a kind of empowerment. There's a Christian empowerment. We are empowered to live differently. Now, when I use that word empowerment, in our secular society, we have a very different understanding of what empowerment is. In our society, secular society, empowerment is all about becoming more and more confident in who you are. Right? That's secular empowerment. Be confident in who you are. And, and often that who you are is rooted in some, some sort of your unique identity. So be, be empowered in who you are as a woman. Be empowered in who you are as a man. Be empowered in who you are in terms of your gender or your sexuality. Be empowered in terms of who you are in terms of your vocation. Be empowered in, in terms of who you are in terms of your talents and your abilities. It's an empowerment that is all rooted in confidence in yourself. But Christian empowerment is just very different. Christian empowerment recognizes our own inadequacy. Christian empowerment begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Christian empowerment begins with, it's not me, it's not my strength, it's not my unique identity that is going to be able to empower me and energize me to live in a good and healthy way. No, it's not my strength, it's not my power, it's not self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. It's Christ working in and through me. And here's what I believe happens. If, if, If we don't rely on the power of God to empower us to work and to live and to serve, one of two things will happen. First of all, you'll burn out. Probably both these things will happen. One is you'll you'll burn out, right? 
you'll, you'll, just, you'll just burn out, right? Because you're trying to use your own energy. Here's what we need to realize about service. This is important. Genuine service expects nothing in return. If, if, you're, if you're genuinely serving, then you won't be expecting anything in return. If you're expecting something in return, it, it gets a little bit, it can get a little bit dangerous here. Because if you're expecting something when people serve, but they're expecting something in return, it can actually become somewhat manipulative. They can become somewhat controlling. Um, and so, so, for example, in the church, if you have somebody who's serving in the church and they expect something in return, one of the ways you can tell that's happening is if they're actually not willing to give up serving. Right? Because So they're actually serving because they, they're getting something out of it. And now they don't really want anybody else to take their place. They just want to do it because it's what they get out of it is the reason that they serve. And if you make any sort of changes in how things are done, they don't want change because if you change things, then they might not get out of it what they're trying to get out of it, right? And so in that context, service isn't really about, isn't just about giving, it's about what you get out of it. But genuine service expects nothing in return. Now here's the problem with that. If genuine service expects nothing in return, then if you're just giving out of your own energy, you will burn out. Right? I mean, a little bit like a battery. Have you ever thought about this? But I've got a battery in here powering my microphone. And it doesn't get anything back. This battery does not get anything out of this experience. It just gives and it gives and it gives and it gives. And then do you know what happens because it gives and it gives and it gives? It dies. Because it's serving. This is genuine service. This battery is serving and getting nothing in return, and so it burns out. Friends, the same thing is true for us. If we give out of our own strength, it will just deplete our resources like a battery and we'll, we'll burn out. We have to rely on the power of God. We have to be tapped into that if we're doing genuine service. If we aren't relying on the power of God to work in us, we'll burn out. And closely related is we will become prideful. This is what happens when you're working out of your own strength, right? Because you start, you start getting tired and you start saying, why aren't others working as hard as I am? Why aren't other people doing why, why is it, you know, why is it that, you know, 90% of the work gets done by 10% of the people, right? Why is it that I'm doing all the work, I'm serving, I'm serving and serving, and these people aren't serving because you're depleting yourself, you start to become bitter, you start to become prideful, about what you're doing, and then what happens? Then you start exuding this sort of have-to mentality. Then you start, in the way you interact with others, there becomes this pressure that you start putting on other people. Before you know it, the church is beginning to cultivate a kind of works-oriented direction towards service. When we rely on our own strength and it's genuine service, we will burn ourselves out, we will become prideful, But not, you see, not, not if the gospel is the root of why we serve. Not if we are united with Christ. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly Again, friends, this is why it's so crucial that when we serve, we are cultivating that relationship with God so that it is his power and his strength working in us.
Okay, let me just sum all of this up here. We've got this core commitment to serve. What happens when our core values collide with that? Being outwardly faced. What happens when the value of being outwardly faced collides with a commitment to serve? It's what gives birth to it, and it reminds us, friends, we exist to serve. That's why we're here. Community-oriented, when that collides, it reminds us that service is an opportunity for us to build community with one another. And then finally, gospel. This is, this, is, this is the heart of it, that if we are going to be a church that serves, we have to be rooted in our relationship with God. The heart of the gospel is that he is the one who can empower us to live and to serve. Can you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning, and God, we do praise you that we are free. God, that we don't have to do anything to be loved by you. God, I pray for those right now who perhaps have forgotten that, find themselves either burnt out or feeling some sense of failure for their lack of service. God, I pray that we would recognize we are all in the same place. We come before you on the basis of your grace and nothing else. God, I pray that the reality of who you are would become more and more precious to us. God, that we would rest entirely in you. God, we lift up our church. God, we pray that you would continue to use our church. God, use our church to be a light in this world. Use our church to be a beacon of hope. God, but it begins with our own hearts. God, make yourself known to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.